Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. and welcome to Nightlight. Our thanks, first of all, to Ken Quiethawk for his amazing introduction and his amazing voice. And if you haven't heard him on his videos, then you've missed an amazing, amazing experience. Tonight we've got an amazing man on with us as well who has an amazing voice as well. And uh, the topic tonight is fascinating to me because it, it doesn't exactly go into my wheelhouse of expertise, so I have pencil and paper ready to be educated here. Uh, Mark Happily has um, a great deal of under a great deal of understanding in this topic, so he has brought with him a, a fantastically well qualified man to talk to us about a topic that we all should be pretty interested in because at some point in time it is going to affect us. So, Mark, take it away. Hey, Barbara. How you doing? Doing well. Thank you. Good. It's, okay. Let me do a little lead-in for our discussion tonight. Um, it, when our our guest returned, uh, the call, my call to uh, be a guest, um, you know, literally had his. Uh, a couple of his articles on my desk, and and he said so, so, something along the lines of like, uh, uh, "You must not uh, have much of a social life if you're reading my works." <laughs> like, oh, hey, buddy, you know, you, you're going to fit in perfectly with this crowd. You know, uh, you know we want you to get guess and you know it, it was really uh a lot of fun and you know, just you know with the initial uh uh call but uh i'm really uh just looking forward to getting into the you know subject of uh recreating the archaic um uh time period but you know we all know that you know the ice age ended uh but but what caused 
that end? You know, was it a natural cycle, uh, human activity, you know, the younger, driest com- comet, or something else? You know, uh, you know, I was just three hours ago, just sitting in the hospital lobby, you know, waiting to get, you know, pick up dad and you know, we're all sit, sitting there just talking, you know, watching the weather channel and they're uh, showing graphs on the weather channel about, you know, but Buffalo, New York has 15 inches less of snow uh, than, than they usually have. Um, you know, the East coast has been much milder than normal uh what is is there something going on it, it, you know what um it, it, you know could the the you know a few people twelve thousand years ago having a few you know, like woolly mammoth barbecues have caused that kind of pollution to warm up the temperatures is, you know, are we seeing a, a repeat of history? Um, so, it, you know, th- this November it seems like it's been about three three months long. Um, you know, we can look at that 14th century uh, mini ice age. And you know it's kind of going along with uh, you know the Black Plague. So you know we do see over time all, all these kind of like different patterns, uh, uh, changes in weather. Uh, what has been causing that? And our guest tonight is going to you know, look at his uh, work with climate change. In the Poverty Point, Louisiana area, about 1500 uh, BC. Um, it's Dr. T. R. Kidder is our guest. He is the chair of the Anthropology Department at Washington University in St. Louis, and he's an environmental scientist. Uh, if you have an interest in the archaic period, TR has written numerous articles. His work is often a resource for other authors. His uh, maps were praised in Signs of Power, and he is featured in the preeminent compilation like Archaic Societies. So, hi, TR. Welcome to Nightlight. Hey, Mark. Hey, Barbara. How are you? No, we're doing fine. You know, we're uh, really looking forward to getting into th- this uh, uh, topic with you tonight. So, you know, let before we get into all the science, um, you, you know, we probably just need to focus first on what is Poverty Point, you know. Where is it located? You know, when was it started? You know, uh, what was its uh, function? Uh, you know, when we talk about the archaic time, you know, what what time frame are we talking about there? So maybe just start with some of the basics. 
Sure. So the, the, some of the areas that I study are to look at the period from roughly about 6,000 B.C. to about um, uh, what we would call the time of Christ, so zero. And so using round numbers, that's basically the archaic period. It's, some people might have slightly different interpretations. Um, and I'm looking at the archaeology of the American Southeast, and particularly you mentioned the Poverty Point site. It's located in northeast Louisiana, near um, the closest city is Monroe, Louisiana, and it's um, probably today maybe about 70 miles, 60 miles from the modern Mississippi River, just to the west of the modern Mississippi River. And the Poverty Point site is known um, uh, around the world for, by archaeologists because it's arguably the largest hunter-gatherer site ever constructed. And so the people who lived at Poverty Point were um, uh, living only on the foods that they could hunt and gather, so they had no agriculture whatsoever. And we usually think of um, hunters and gatherers as living in very small communities, um, 10, 20, 30 people. We think of them as being very simple in terms of their material culture. We think of them being um, uh, economically not particularly sophisticated. And we especially think of them as being politically very, what we would call egalitarian or equal. So no chiefs, no kings, no nobody of different statuses and things like that. And what makes Poverty Point particularly unusual is its size. So at roughly, you said roughly about 1500 BC to about 1200 BC, Poverty Point was one of the largest sites in, in, in North America, certainly the largest site in the United States. It um, covers an area of about seven square kilometers. And I don't, it's hard for me to give you a specific reference for that, but the core area of the site, just to give you an example, is um, about three quarters of a mile across east to west and about oh, close to a mile north to south. Um, and that's a very large area. And um, they also, the people who built Poverty Point, who, who, and we don't know their name. You know, we, we call them Poverty Point people, and that's named for the archaeological site. But uh, those people also um, built very large earthen mounds. Um, the largest mound, which is, uh, you know, has the great name of Mound A, um, is about, um, let's see, it's, it's about 700 feet long by about 700 feet wide, kind of shaped like a T if you look at it from above. And it stands 72 feet tall above the landscape. And we've calculated, just as an example, that that would have taken the equivalent of about 32,500 dump truck loads of soil. So everybody, or certainly people in the United States, know the standard dump truck, you know, and if you took 32,500 of those, you could make that mound. And what's remarkable about that is, is that that mound, we think, was built in a very short period of time, maybe 90 days, maybe 120 days, by people who had no draft animals. They had no agriculture, so they also had to you know, hunt and gather their food. 
They didn't, of course, have metal tools, uh, shovels, things like that. So this is a remarkable piece of labor, which suggests that the site was um, occupied by a lot of people who were um, organized in some fashion. You know, somebody was telling them what to do and how to do it. They had a very sophisticated economy. Um, to give you an example, Poverty Point is an area of the Mississippi River Valley where there's no naturally occurring stone because the river has eroded all of the, um, the stone outcrops. So in order to get stone, you'd have to go basically two days away. Yet despite this, Poverty Point has literally tons, probably over 100 tons of lithic material, stone material that they use wow. to make tools. And much of this material comes from very far distances. So, for instance, I'm here in St. Louis, and I'm not far from a, a stone tool source, what is known as the Crescent Quarries. And the fact is, is that chert or the stone material ends up in, in Poverty Point, which is, I think it's about 600 miles farther south. Um, now, this is a really remarkable thing. So these hunter-gatherers, they're living in a big, big site with large populations. They're building these remarkable monuments. Um, they're trading and exchanging stone material in large quantities over large areas. The other thing that's really interesting about Poverty Point is the, 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 the remains of people who are practicing this kind of culture are found all the way from southeast Missouri along the Mississippi River, basically where the Ohio River joins the Mississippi River, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, and from roughly the Louisiana-Texas border all the way to the Florida Panhandle. So there's something really unusual and remarkable going on at this time. And again, the, you know, the, 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 the real frame of this is about 1500 to 1200 B.C., um, overall, although there, we're, we're, we're finding new evidence that may push this back farther. It is uh, there a uh, significance, or is there a significance uh, behind the name Poverty Point? Uh, you know, wh where did that name come from? That's a that's a really great question, and we don't actually have exactly the answer. So in this area of Louisiana, um, there was a small bayou called uh, Bayou Mason, and along this bayou, back before you know, in the in the 1800s during the steamboat era, there are a number of landing places where the steamboats would stop, and. These have a, they, they have a variety of names, and, and interestingly enough, in this part of northeast Louisiana, many of the names seem to be associated with bad things happening. So, for instance, there is Hard Times Landing, um, uh, which is not far from where Poverty Point is. We think it was originally called Poverty Point Landing, probably because during the American Civil War, the Union troops and the Confederate troops fought over this area. They kind of went through and, and took all the food from this area in order to either deny the enemy or supply their own troops. And probably it was um, sort of named Poverty Point or you know, in other places, as they say, like Hard Times Landing. They were probably named on account of the fact that it was just at that time a pretty bad place to be. Oh, okay. So, so simple enough. And while 
the mound A and all the other mounds and earthworks were being built, um, there really weren't any uh, burial mounds in this poverty point area, correct? Right, and this is one of the fascinating things about this time period. And, and at Poverty Point and at sites that are in the Mississippi Valley of this time period, we basically do not have any evidence of how people were burying themselves. So we don't, as you say, we don't have burial mounds, which in later times, in later pre-contact times, let's say after the time of Christ or around the time of Christ, would become popular. So they're not burying their dead in, in, in mounds or earthworks. Um, we find no cemeteries. We find no isolated graves. Um, if, if I were to guess, they're, they're, they're not burying people, but maybe leaving them um, to, you know, to, to rot or maybe throwing them in the river. We really don't know. It's, it's, it's one, of, one of the many mysteries of Poverty Point is, is is you know who were they physically and and what did they do with their dead because they didn't leave them around that we can find. Okay, so so in your uh, pilgrimage article, you do cover the information about. You have a few mounds being built, and then it was uh, redesigned, reconfigured. That's when the uh, really uh, unique uh, concentric arcs were built. Uh, can you t tell us a little bit about that that transformation from uh, – you know, the original design to what w was done, and then you know, all, all that is still visible today, correct? Yeah, most of it is. So, you know, I think it's 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 useful to think about uh, archaeological sites, particularly like Poverty Point, as, as they they have a history. Um, so, if we think about um, something like the Washington Mall, the, you know, the, the way the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. This didn't get built sort of instantly. It, it, it has slowly been added to. So uh, on the Washington Mall, for instance, they added a World War II memorial recently, and before that, the Vietnam Memorial. And Poverty Point in one way is a lot like this, which is that um, it, it has evolved through time. And our archaeological understanding of, of the site is, is somewhat limited because it's a very big site and we've only, you know, touched or excavated relatively small amounts of it. But um, so we think the actual original uh, sort of founding event of Poverty Point actually took place maybe at 3000 B.C. So this is well before Poverty Point has become a, a sort of major site. About a mile south of the site, not quite a mile south of the site, people built a small mound, which is called Lower Jackson. And they lived there for a little while. This is, again, about 3000 B.C., and then they left. Then around 1500 B.C., 
people come back to this area at poverty point, and the first thing they see, they're living on the landscape there, and there are lots of people, so there's lots of garbage, so something even then interesting is going on. And then they build the first of their mounds at, at the Poverty Point site. So we're now close to a mile to the north of this Lower Jackson Mound. And they build their first mound directly in a line of sight with the Lower Jackson Mound. And it's hard to believe that they didn't understand that relationship. So it's as if they were marking the beginning of a new site by literally lining themselves up with their ancestors. And this mound at Poverty point is called mound B because we just we, we letter these mounds simply to, to so we don't get confused about them. And mound B is built literally on a straight direct north-south line to this lower Jackson mound. As I say again, we've argued without being able to prove it conclusively that the poverty point people or the people who are building poverty point knew about their ancestors and they were connecting very directly to that ancestral power or spirit or memory, something like that. And then, uh, and, and, and they used Mound B in some fashion. We don't really fully understand what they did on it, but they built a series of surfaces and seemed to have maybe lived on the mound, something like that. It's, it's hard to tell exactly what they were doing. Then one day, um, more or less what happens is that they took a bunch of sacks of dirt, and we've got remains of basketry and literally hide containers. They took a bunch of these sacks of dirt and, 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 and baskets of dirt, put them on top of this mound B, which at that time was maybe about 20, 25 feet tall, and stacked up these baskets of dirt, covered the entire mound over, and no longer ever used that area. So there's, there's this history. So you've got this early mound. They then build mound B in direct line. They use the mound. Then they, like, cover it as if and, – and this wasn't accidental. This was a deliberate activity to, to – we might think of it as, as deconsecrating it in the sense that, you know, we don't walk away from a church. You know, it, we, 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 we deconsecrate it so that it's no longer got that power. And so that's what it looks like at, at, at Mound B at roughly the same time. And I have to admit I'm interpreting the data in a particular way because I see it this way, but you know, there might be – there certainly are other interpretations. At the same time they sort of terminate or end Mound B, they start building these great big ridges. And if the, re, you know, if the listener sort of has in his mind a series of Cs, the, the letter C – concentrically arranged, so the biggest C with a, a smaller C inside it, and there's six of these C-shaped ridges, and each ridge would have stood, oh, you know, probably something on the order of six to 12 feet tall. They would have been across in their width of the ridges. They would have been maybe 50 to 60 feet wide, and their length, of course, the outer one has a greater circumference, so it would have been really quite large. And these are artificially constructed. So they're digging dirt up and they're, they're heaping it up to create these C-shaped ridges of, of earth. And so what you have are the ridges of earth and in between the soil where they dug out. So you've got what we call a swale or a low depression between these ridges. And we think 
that the ridges were probably used for living. But the funny thing is, after a lot of archaeology, we've never found any houses on those ridges. But recently, one thing they did is they did some um, what we call remote sensing. So they used uh, a magnetic field, what are known as gradiometers. They did uh, 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 ground-penetrating radar. And they found outside of the ridges in the, in the sort of middle of that C-shaped area a series of post structures. And these were, we call them wood hinges because we don't know what else to call them. So imagine a circle about 120 feet in diameter with single set posts. So each, you know, the, the, it was built with these posts set in big pits and the posts are about the size of a telephone pole. And this wasn't a structure because it's much too big to have been roofed. So they build these great big circular buildings. We don't know what for, um, but they took an awful lot of effort. It took a lot of time to cut all those trees, to dig all those holes, things like that. And so something remarkable is going on. And then just to make things much more interesting, they they deconstructed these wood hinges. They literally pulled these telephone pole-sized posts out of the holes. They filled the holes in. They then covered this entire area with a couple feet of, of urban fill. And so remember, they're moving an awful lot of dirt, again, with no machinery, no, um, no draft animals, nothing like that. And then the final or one of the final things they seem to do is build this thing we call Mound A, which is outside of the C-shaped structures. Interestingly enough, Mark, it's in line with Lower Jackson. Remember that founding right. mound right. and Mound B uh-huh. on the north. So again, it's as if they're tapping into this sort of network, right? This network of ancestral mounds. They are aware, the people who are building this are very much aware of their ancestors. They, they, they're, they're not turning their back they're embracing this. And again, Mount B is this huge mound. It's the second largest mound in North America after what we call Monk's Mound at Cahokia, which is located just outside of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with <clears throat> all, all this new construction, redesigning of uh, the, the site, um you know there is you know your uh colleague uh dr clark's chapter in signs of tower that you know that they were using a standard u- unit of measurements um you know there's a lot of math and science involved in like making all these mounds uh, seems like it's very close to being equidistant. Some of them are. I mean, yeah, it it looks uh, they they form a triangle. It's, uh, you know, his uh, draw all the drawings and he credits you with, in the uh, his chapter for um, 
all, all the maps that you, you've contributed. Uh, um, you know, these uh, earthen structures are far more sophisticated than what we would normally attribute to, like, you know, just the hunter-gatherer type groups of people. Yeah. So, so uh, we we were talking just before the show, and Barbara mentioned that someone had been speaking about Gebekli Tepe in in, in Turkey, which is let, yeah, often that's my credited, show. Right, and that's often credited as sort of being the first religious structure in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And I imagine many of the listeners are familiar with um, uh, Stonehenge in the United Kingdom in England. Oh yeah. Um, known as a sort of some kind of rig- ritual or religious center. Let me, let, me, let me put things in scale. So Mound A at Poverty Point, if, if you took Gobekli Tepe, which is actually not a very big site, you could probably fit about 45 Gobekli Tepes into the footprint of Mound A. You can fit wow. about a dozen Stonehenges into the footprint of Mound A. Um, and the point I'm obviously making is Mound A is a very, you know, it's a very big structure. Um, and and the the thing that becomes important to to understand is that Gobekli Tepe and, and and Stonehenge are made of stone, and and these are big pieces of stone that required a great deal of effort and energy to move. But the fascinating thing is is that the mounds at Poverty Point, they're somewhere around 1500 to 1300 um, BC, so they're what that makes them two, nearly 2000 years old. 1,700 years old, something like that. The fact of the matter is is that they have survived over that time period without melting away. And the reason for this is because the people who built them were sophisticated engineers. They were, we've called them, I, I wrote an article with a colleague, Sarah Sherwood, at the University of the South, and we call them Da Vinci's of Dirt because they are remarkably they're, they're both artistic in the sense that they're shaping these things into purposeful forms, but they're also engineers. They're also capable of, as you know, sophisticated um, geometry. They're certainly f- capable of sophisticated um, layout and planning. They're certainly capable of moving remarkable amounts of earth. And, and uh, you know, I asked the listener, if, if you don't believe me, go try, um, you know, to go dig and, and with, uh, with a shovel, you know, spend a day digging, uh, just, just dig a hole and see how much dirt you build up. Because, in fact, what, you know, if, if you're an active individual, you're going to probably make a pile of dirt that would cover an area of, oh, maybe 10 feet in diameter and maybe about a foot and a half to two feet tall, having spent an entire day digging with a metal shovel. And, and, and what we're really looking at is a, is a people who have an amazing ability to, to organize themselves, to plan, to move dirt, to shape it, to pack it down, um, and if you look at the soil when we excavate it, it's, 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 it's this sort of bewildering array where they're literally taking different types of soil from different stratigraphic levels vertically in the, so, in the dirt or from different areas of the site. They're mixing it together. 
Um, they really knew what they were doing, and the amount of time, effort, and, 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 and work that was required is certainly equal to or far in excess of anything like a Gobekli Tepe or uh, a Stonehenge. And again, I, I point out, these are hunter-gatherers. These are people who are not supposed to be able to do this sort of thing. Okay, so with all of this information in mind, there have been, and you know, all the rocks that you discussed uh, that that uh, were brought to the site. Some of the um, original interpretations of Poverty Point were that it was a trade fair and you get all these, uh, uh, um, you know, follow-up uh, theories. But, you, you know, you you and some other colleagues uh, recently wrote a Pilgrimage to Poverty Point. Uh, and, you know, you're uh, just kind of – Saying it kind of you know more like uh, um, uh, like the Vatican of its time, or people you know making it to uh, was it the uh, Saint James uh, uh, Compostela, uh, you know the Canterbury Tales uh, type pilgrimage destination. Mm-hmm. So th- th- that that's uh, you know one of the uh, more recent interpretations. Uh, you know, why do you think there is more of a uh, uh, spiritual attraction to this site, and not so much um, the you know the uh, people going there to uh, trade and barter for uh, prestigious uh, rocks and exotic goods? Mm-hmm. Well, so I mean, it's a really interesting sort of set of, of of issues. So again, just to remind us that you know these are hunter gatherers; they're supposed to be simple people. They're not doing simple things. And um, the original interpretations of the site were that because it's so big, first of all, these must be agricultural people because hunter gatherers can't do that. And then we found that indeed they're hunter gatherers. There's no evidence of agriculture. And then people said, well. You know, they've got all this stone material in an area where there's no stone, so this must be an economic center where people brought stone and traded and exchanged it. And uh, people have pointed out, and this is not my recognition, but, you know, it's, it's a very funny thing that if people brought stone to Poverty Point to trade and exchange it, what they appear to have done is brought it, traded and exchanged it, and then left it at Poverty Point because there is literally, as I said, tons and tons of that stone material. So it seems very odd that you get a trading site where everybody left the material that you traded behind. Um, People have thought that the mounds might represent some kind of defensive structure. There's no evidence of warfare. And and, and we became – interested in thinking about the, the, the notion that maybe the explanation for Poverty Point didn't lie in the idea of 
it being a political center, more of a ritual religious center. Um, and I think one of the things that becomes very interesting, and again, I go back to Gobekli Tepe. You know, Gobekli Tepe is this remarkable site with these remarkably carved uh, stone um, uh, standing, you know, objects and, and it's in mm-hmm. a circle. It's not very big, it's very early. I mean, it's really an amazing site. Nobody seems to have a problem saying this is one of the earliest religious structures in the world. But you come to North America with North American Indians and particularly with hunter-gatherers, and people say, well, no, they couldn't possibly have done that. Well, the one thing that we have seen is that poverty point, that the stone tool material is making it very long distances. Somebody is bringing this material in. And the other thing that becomes interesting is they're not just bringing any material in. Often the material they're bringing in is um, of particular colors or particular configurations. It's often shaped into particular types of stone tools that appear to have distinctive um, geographic origins. So there are certain projectile points or, 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 or spear points that look they came from sort of central Arkansas and some from farther north, some from farther south. So it really looks as if people are bringing lots of things as if they're coming together. And this is really what we think Poverty Point is increasingly, is it's a coming together place. So for instance, at Poverty Point, we find no evidence of things like chiefdoms or kings. We find no like building where, you know, a rich person would have lived or a a leader would have lived, anything like that. And so what we really envision is this notion that increasingly, for reasons that we admittedly don't fully understand, people came to Poverty Point bringing with them what we might think of as offerings, maybe a stone, a piece of stone or something like that. And what they were doing, we think, is that they're building a community effectively. So there's a there's an anthropologist named Victor Turner. He talks about building communitas, this notion that by coming together, by sharing work, by exchanging materials and 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 bringing materials to the site and, and depositing them, you become part of a community, part of a larger community. And so we're, I, I, I'm not wedded to the idea in the sense that there may be other explanations, but I believe personally that the pilgrimage model fits the data certainly as well, if not better, than an economic model. And um, we, we have instances in, in written history of things similar to this. So, for instance, it's a long way away in time and space, but in West Africa, excuse me, East Africa, we know in the 19th century that there was a, um, a prophet uh, uh, belonged to a tribe known as the Nuer in Sudan, and he literally, he healed some people and became a revered leader, and people would literally come to his, what started out as his campsite, and they eventually built a mound, that an earthen mound out of handfuls of dirt that came from thousands of miles, literally thousand miles away, um, and the mound was something on the order of 70, 80 feet tall. You know, people do things for religious reasons that we don't fully understand, and, and, and it's often hard to, to, to explicate, to give a, a, a real story to this. But, you know, there's no obvious economic reason, for instance, to build Mound A. 
You know, um, you don't you don't need Mound A to live. If if what you mean by living is sheerly an economic rationale, but if you need ritual and religion to organize your life to get it to keep the forces of chaos at bay. Maybe what you do is you bring people together from far-flung areas, from St. Louis, from Louisville, Kentucky, from the Jacksonville area of Florida, from Little Rock, Arkansas, from you know uh, Mobile, Tennessee, all over the place. You bring them together, and you create meaning that way. That's kind of our interpretation of Poverty Point. Effectively, I am willing to argue that it's the earliest church in North America, and it's a great big coming together place. Okay, so with that that imagery in mind and knowing people were traveling such extensive distances to possibly leave uh, offerings, how do we work in the climate change uh, scenario that you studied, mm-hmm. where where does that start to uh, to to make an impact on the uh, use of this uh, pilgrimage destination? Well, one of the things that becomes fascinating about Poverty Point is um, it's this great big site. There are, remember, just to remind us, there, there are many people throughout the Mississippi Valley who are, who are sharing the material culture, who we would call poverty point people. Um, there are other sites. Some of them have mounds. Some of them are, are, are much smaller, so people are sort of living a classic hunter-gatherer existence. It's basically, if you will, a fairly good time. There are lots of archaeological sites at this time. Then somewhere between roughly 1200 B.C. and about 1000 B.C., and the dates are, you know, it's not perfectly dated, all of a sudden, all that seems to disappear. So there, now there are no longer any archaeological sites. And that's the funny thing is because in, throughout much of history in most of the American Southeast, when one culture sort of disappears – there's good evidence of how it evolved into something different, right? Um, it, you know, you can sort of see the transition. Here in the Mississippi Valley, everything just goes away, and we won't see sustained human use of the Mississippi Valley until about 400 B.C. So there's a roughly, depending on how you count it, 800 to 600-year period when there is not a whole lot going on. There's no big sites. Poverty Point is abandoned. Um, All the other contemporary sites stop being used. And so, you know, first of all, it's just a head-scratcher. What happened? I mean, something Mm -hmm. happened, and we have to account for it. And um, I was doing archaeological and geological work not far from Poverty Point in in the same area of the Mississippi River, doing geological coring, and, and I was looking at trying to understand the relationship of the river, the Mississippi River, to these small settlements. And what we kept coming up with was evidence of flood deposits. And we can tell this by the texture of the soil and the stratigraphy, how it's deposited 
uh, over certain deposits and underneath other deposits. And I began to realize that that these floods seem to cover poverty point sites, and the floods were then covered by sites dating to about 400 BC. So stratigraphically, if you sort of think about the layer cake model, if poverty points on the bottom, the first layer of cake is a flood deposit, and the next layer is a 400 BC deposit. So we kind of got that flood layer sandwiched. It's younger than poverty point, but older than this 400, what we call early woodland at 400 BC. So this this kept happening. You know, you you at least I as an as an archaeologist, I'm I'm probably a little bit slow, but it took me a while. But I kept finding this same pattern over and over again, and eventually it sort of you know it 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 dawned on me well. Maybe this is, in fact, the explanation for the end of Poverty Point. And then what I started doing was looking outside of the immediate area around Poverty Point. I looked farther north into Missouri. I looked farther east into Tennessee. I looked up into Illinois uh, near St. Louis. And everywhere I kept looking, I kept finding this gap in the archaeological record roughly from 1200 B.C. to about 400 B.C., not it's not always that perfect. It's if you will, the boundaries are a bit fuzzy. But the interesting thing is, everywhere in the Mississippi River Valley and the tributaries, like the Tennessee River and parts of the Ohio and uh, the Arkansas and things like that, there's nobody living there at that time period. And so, logically, you you have to now turn to some big event or big process to explain this because it's not just happening in you know one small area of northeast Louisiana. It's happening over a very large area of eastern North America. Um, and so I started looking at, at climate models, that is not climate models, but climate data, and very quickly came to realize that there was a period of flooding in the Mississippi River caused by increased rainfall Again, coincidentally, I don't think so, but possibly coincidentally, at this same time period. And we have data from the headwaters of the Mississippi River in, in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and we have data from the Gulf of Mexico, which really very clearly shows that there are periods of, of extensive flooding um, and you know, what we would say, you know, the fancy term is climate perturbations things got a little bit upset in terms of the climate cycle. And then you start to look over the global cycle and you realize this is not just happening in North America. You see evidence of this in Western Europe. You see it in, the, in parts of Russia and Central Asia, maybe in China. So something, you know, my, my suspicion, my argument is that something is going on with the global climate at this time period. And TR, when you know, I was uh, doing some prep for the show, you know, reading your contribution to archaic societies, and you and Ken Sassman wrote a disjunction or hiatus in archaeologically visible occupations in the alluvial portions of the Mississippi River Basin dates to about uh, 3150 to 2600 uh, BP. 
Um, so, you know, this must have been some kind of uh, severe disruption for people to basically abandon that area for 500 years. I, you know, that's pretty severe flooding, uh, ruining of the you know, potential uh, you know, occupational areas. I mean, this sounds like uh, something really severe uh, going on uh, in, in the middle part of the country. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, this is what makes me nervous about this. And, and you know, it's, so this is my own idea. I mean, you know, it's one of the few things I can actually take credit for. And at the same time, I can argue with myself about it. And, and you're absolutely right. You point to one of the things that makes me a little nervous about this is because it is so severe and so dramatic. Um, but, you know, every time I look at the data, and again, it's not just in the Mississippi Valley. It's in the Tennessee. It's in the Arkansas. It's in the Ohio. It's also in the northeastern part of the United States in areas not at all connected to the Mississippi River. There is a major change in cultures and, and I would argue, driven by some kind of fairly large-scale climate event taking place. And the, the interesting thing is, is in the Mississippi River area, if you sort of think of the Mississippi River as this sort of straight line through North America, um, you have the alluvial area, which is where the floods would happen, and that's definitely abandoned. But in some parts along the edges, in the high hill country, on the edges of the Mississippi River, it's interesting to note that we actually have increased population at this time. So it would appear that what we're seeing is, is it's not like Armageddon. You know, it's not like there are no native peoples living in this part of the world. What they're doing is they're moving out of these low-lying areas that seem to be flooded regularly, and they're living now up in the uplands. And so, so this is a pretty consistent pattern. And, you know, we, 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 I, I speculate, because that's all I can do, that when this flooding started, one of the things that it did is it basically disrupted these trade exchange and pilgrimage patterns of people coming long distances to Poverty Point. So Poverty Point had been the center of North America. I mean, it had been the kind of cultural happening place of North America and now with all this flooding, people couldn't get to it. Maybe the, you know, the reason that they had built Poverty Point was to keep, I'm speculating, keep the gods happy. And now the gods aren't happy, so maybe you don't go to Poverty Point anymore. Um, but, but, you know, this, the, 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 there's this really big change that is taking place across eastern North America. And, and it's hard for me to envision that this isn't, affected by, maybe not solely driven by, but affected by changes in these kind of climate situations. And in your climate change in the archaic to woodland transition in the Mississippi River Basin article that appeared in American Antiquity magazine, uh, yeah, you you have these uh, really interesting maps that 
show where Poverty Point was you know, the actual uh, like pilgrimage destination was located on the Macon Ridge and then where the river changed course over time and it's moved uh, quite a few miles to the east. I mean, that, you know, you don't see that uh, going on with uh, a lot of, uh, you know, just the one time hurricanes hitting, you know, know, we, we aren't seeing this occurring in today's world. You know, this was like, seems like something was going on for a prolonged period of time to cause a river to jump a channel by what uh, 10 20 miles mm-hmm. yeah I mean this is one of the interesting things and so so it really is the, the this channel jumping the, the the technical term for it is called avulsion or breakout and um one of the things that we certainly see or appear to see is that when this flooding takes place, it results in causes um, a reorganization of the Mississippi River. And in the Mississippi, you know, I, I, I hope the listeners have an appreciation of it. Um, it's a great big river. It's obviously very powerful. It can move around. Mark Twain describes it. Um, you know, as sort of being serpentine and having a life of its own and, and constantly moving back and forth. Um, but, but the river has long-term what we would call geological controls as elevations shift as it builds up its banks and things. And when this flooding happened, it seems to have triggered a kind of tipping point where the river moved its location, as you say, a bit to the east, um, and in doing so, uh, that set of changes, first of all, sites that have been um, uh, living near the river or far away from the river, we either now far from the river or suddenly near the river. And so a lot of landscape changes was taking place. It also led to this great flooding that I've been talking about, which seems to have buried a number of areas um, that had probably been very environmentally productive um, for the inhabitants. So this really disrupts the lifestyle of people. And as you say, it, this wasn't one year. Um, this was multiple years. And, and the, the thing I would encourage people to do is go back to you know, the source, who is Mark Twain, and read Life on the Mississippi. And you can read at the end of Life on the Mississippi a story about how he covered a major flood, I think, in the 1870s, and he goes and visits people in Louisiana who are affected, and they're basically living on boats tied to trees, the tops of trees, just waiting for the river to go down. So people could survive short-term floods. This was really something different. And as I say, this is different not just in you know, Louisiana or Mississippi or even Tennessee, but it's happening in Ontario. It's happening in Maine. It's happening in wow. New York State. It's happening in Virginia. If, you know, something big is happening, and, and what we're seeing is people change their behavior. So we are literally seeing the transition 
from what we call the archaic. And archaic people are hunter-gatherers who aren't really regularly using pottery outside of a limited area of the American Southeast. And suddenly people now start to adopt new forms of food production, what we think of as agriculture, and they start basically um, using pottery regularly. They start, as you pointed out, burying their dead in, in, in earthen mounds. They really change their entire behavior quite dramatically. Okay, so these climate events are really brought a lot of behavioral changes to the archaic uh, people. When, when we look at that, you know, just one sample of you know the couple, uh, like three or four, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the show. But uh, you know, if we are, are looking at you know, these, you know, years of just uh, areas just being inundated, um, what can we do with that information and project that into you know? Today, since you know, cl- climate change is a major political issue, and you know, and for the uh, the future, what w- w- you know, we've already been talking about. Uh, Buffalo has a lot less snow than Norwich. Are, are we uh, experiencing some kind of El Nino thing now? Is is, is that what was going on now, twelve hundred BC? What uh, you know. What's the what can we learn today from this experience of poverty points flooding? You know, that's a that's one of these really tough questions because I'd I'd, I'd love to draw for you and for the listeners a a straight line between saying oh you know the you know we can learn this directly from what happened. Um, it, it's not that easy because, of course, that was a very unique historical circumstance. You know, the 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 cultural context was unique. The climatic events were unique, and we can't. You know, a modern society is nothing like Poverty Point. You know, that's a that's, a, that's an obvious given. Um, and the climate change we we feel that we're getting today certainly doesn't appear to be anything as dramatic as what may have happened in poverty point times. But on the other hand, you know, I am I am sort of mindful of of a couple of things. One is um, if it's happened in the past, it can happen again, okay. and we need to be just. I think one of the things that I come away when I study the past and I look at climate change, because I also do this in China and in you know, Central Asia, and, and you see this repeated pattern, and, and I'd argue that the pattern is one of hubris. Humans think that they've got it solved. You know, I don't, I, I, I don't doubt for a moment that the people living at Poverty Point figured, hey, man, we've got this we got this, right? And there's no problem. Yet there was a problem. And 
if you know you mentioned the ice age well we know there are various societies and civilizations in the 1500s and 1400s that you know thought they had it and they didn't have it um and so I think one thing that we ought to just be aware of is, is this notion that, you know, if it happened in the past, it can happen again. And in fact, if you look at the long-term human past, it's almost always happened, which is to say climates have changed. And what I tell my students is climates have changed, climates are changing, and climates will change in the future. And that really means that we need to think about this, we need to be aware of this, we need to be mindful of this, and we ought to not think that we're so um, sophisticated that we've, we've got it solved. Because I don't think we've got it solved. Nature is still, you know, nature will out in the end. And the fact is, as I tell my students also, look, if somebody, you know, gives you long odds in, in say, building a wall against the Mississippi River, Take the river, because over time, the river will win. So, you know, some of it is simply we, we, we ought to, 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 to think about this. The other thing I think that becomes important for me about thinking about Poverty Point is it's less about climate change, but it's about the notion of our history as, as, as an American people and a recognition that you know, Poverty Point is, is a very important part of the story of North America. It's the story of a particular time and place when people were doing remarkable and extraordinary things that are literally unmatched anywhere in the world at any time. And um, I think we ought, to, we ought to recognize that, and we ought to celebrate that, and we ought to respect that. And, you know, you and I were talking, Poverty Point is a World Heritage Site. It's an amazing place to visit. It's a beautiful location. It's, um, you know, it's a, it, it, it's a magical place because it really was a place where, where, you know, history happened. And we should not forget that. And, you know, I said that um, you know, Poverty Point's much bigger than Stonehenge. And I often, you know, I get jealous, if you will, because um, – you know, everyone talks about Stonehenge. No one really talks about Poverty Point, but Poverty Point is much bigger, and in just as many ways, and I mean no disrespect to Stonehenge, it's just as complex, weird, and interesting. It's just different. And we ought to remember that there is a legacy of Native peoples on this continent that we ought to be celebrating. I agree with that. And... It... You know, a lot of your archaic colleagues talk about the archaic period covers an enormous expanse of time, uh, but it's actually the least written about, the least studied part of America's uh, prehistory. Uh, but you know this you know discussion tonight's really been fascinating about uh, you know you know we've been taking an in-depth look at just one area and you know we don't hear you know a lot about uh, like th this kind of uh, climate change on 
people and the destruction of you know like uh, you know the major um, religious center of the time period. You know, why do you think it is that the archaic period just kind of been ignored? I don't know if it's just, you know, later cultures have more fascinating uh, uh, grave goods, but there were so many other interesting things going on uh, during the archaic period, and they're just overlooked. It's really well, a shame. Well, I mean, certainly I feel that way because, of course, it's near and dear to my heart. I mean, I think there are a number of things that go on. One thing that is certainly the case is that um, many of these earlier remains are buried beneath later deposits, um, which means that um, they're harder to get at, and often it's, frankly, just archaeologically easier and cheaper to look at more recent material. Understandably, that more recent material means more historically to the native peoples who still live in North America and to the colonial ancestors who settled in in, in this area. Um, There are certainly the case that many archaic sites, and this becomes one of the interesting questions, for all the complexity and remarkableness of Poverty Point, there are thousands of, frankly, not particularly exciting archaic archaeological sites because most archaeological sites in the archaic period people were living pretty simple hunter-gatherer life and one of the things that that becomes fascinating about poverty point on a big anthropological scale is trying to use this to understand social variation and how it is that different societies could organize themselves and you know how is it that it, within, you know, within let's say um, 25 or 30 miles of Poverty Point itself, with all of this stuff going on, at the exact same time, there were many sites where people basically are living day-to-day humdrum existence, hunting, gathering, living and dying. I mean, they're not building mounds. They're not, you know, they've got some, you know, exotic materials, but but nothing exciting. And so. You know, the, 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 the question about the archaic becomes how you formulate these questions. And um, what I think has been exciting about some of our work is that it's allowed us to start to rethink not just the archaic period, but also Native American behavior, and especially mm-hmm. this idea of the behavior of hunters and gatherers. Anybody who's taken an introductory course in, in anthropology has learned about hunter-gatherers because they're the sort of staple of anthropology. Well, Poverty Point changes our thinking about hunters and gatherers. It, this is, you know, I mean, I'll say it, it's a, it's a terrible word in one sense, but this, this is a civilization, you know. This is, this is a complex, intertwined, economically sophisticated group of people, but they were hunter-gatherers, you know, they're not agriculturalists. And this really forces us to rethink how we even think about the history of humankind, I'd argue. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just, you make a, uh, a excellent point. You know, it's formulating questions. So what – I know 
you you have to uh, teach uh, uh, cl- class tomorrow, so I don't want to keep any keep you up any later than uh, than, than you need to be. But um, and do you, do you want to go for a few more minutes or I'll go for a few more minutes? But you're obviously right. I'm, I'm already up past my bedtime, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What? Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Hopefully, we have. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of artists and writers, musicians tuning in, you know, just to learn from you know, th- those who you know, ha- have experience and, you know, you know can a- encourage uh, others to um, you know, get their works published or song uh, uh, re- recorded. But, you know, if uh, you had something to say to uh, you know the listeners out there who are uh, hoping you know have their research uh, uh, published, you know, what does it take to uh, you know write like a chapter that you and uh, Dr. Sassman did for <clears throat> uh, the uh, book uh, Archaic Societies. Uh, it, it, since, since we are talking about the major arch, archaic site in North America, and you and Dr. Sassman are given the task of Writing a major you know, chapter on this site, you know, what does it take for you know, co-authors to work together to get that accomplished? And 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 you do a great job in that uh, uh, chapter too. Well, well, thank you. I mean, the, the first thing I'd say to anybody is don't write like me because you, <laughs> you, you renounce several of the titles and, they, you know, they actually put me to sleep, basically. Um, and, well, and, you know, I mean, I think one of the things to, to respect is, is, is just simply to find a voice. Um, you know, I, I, part of a professional training in, in the academy is to learn a particular voice. And, frankly, it can be deadly dull because that's partly how we're trained to do it. Um, you know, I, I think that, that for me, at least a lot of it is, is, is ultimately, you know, I know that this is sort of trite, but it's perseverance. It's, it, and, and it's having some measure of faith because it's, it's easy at least for me to doubt myself and to, 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 you know, not necessarily push forward. And, and, and that it's just important to have that gumption at the end, you know, writing that article with Ken, I, I do a lot of co-authorship nowadays and, and, and increasingly. So I, 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 most of what I write is co-authored and that, that article with, with Ken Sassaman was actually one of the, the funniest in one sense, because a, a normal way in, in my profession to, to co-author is to, um, Basically, I would write the article and then I'd give it to my co-author and she or he would uh, make changes and suggestions and we'd argue about this paragraph or that paragraph. The article I wrote with Ken, we did over a very short period of time. I think it was a couple days 
partly because wow. we have headline and um we were writing he was in florida i was in uh, missouri and we were writing i'd write uh you know three or four pages and kind of he'd then write two or three or three or four pages and then i'd write two or three and it really you know we just kept sort of building on it and, and each of us took different sections on um, a lot more on the earlier material. I did a lot more on the later material, and and it was a lot of fun. I mean, Ken is a is a remarkable scholar, and 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 it was just a, it, it it was a lot of fun to do that. And I've done pretty much every model of co-authorship, from sitting down in a room and just hammering out a an article to somebody writes it and I make a few comments and they stick my name on the end of it. Um, you know, co-authorship for me, co-teaching. These are amazing opportunities because I get to work with incredibly brilliant people and learn from them. And I get to learn, you know, how they view the world. And, and I get to be better because I get to see the world through other people's eyes. And, and you know, that's one of the, you know, one of the real benefits for, for what I do is, is, is literally just having this opportunity to, to see through other people's eyes and to experience that. And, and when I'm really good about that and I listen to my colleagues and I, um, I'm thoughtful and not buried in my own ego of, of you know, I know the answer, um, you know, I, I do. I learn a great deal, and it's, and, and it's immense amounts of fun. Okay. Well, okay. How about uh, we uh, wrap the show there? I want you to – be late for uh, class tomorrow, and you know we can, uh, you know, love to have you come come back and keep encouraging us. You know, it's, you know, you had a nice sized classroom uh, t- tonight to educate so many people, and I, you know, you know listeners are, uh, you know, want to know more about. Dr. Kidder, I'd highly recommend the Archaic Societies book. And uh, do you have any lectures coming up? Uh, or you know, is there a place where people can download your uh, articles or just get them through interlibrary loans? Well, uh, you know, there's several things. One is if people go to my website, which and they can get to that by just Googling my name at Washington University in St. Louis, um, there are – I've got some of my uh, lectures um, in video format. There's some other blog posts. Okay. There's also um, something that people might enjoy um, is a uh, what, what's known as an ultra-condensed science uh, piece, and this is – trying to basically condense everything I said tonight in about three and a half minutes. And it's, it's illustrated by um, a, a well-known artist who sort of does a kind of cartoon version along with my, my narration. And it's about Poverty Point, and, and, and people can, can find that on my website. Um, and I think, it, you know, and it, 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 it's short, like I say, three and a half minutes, and it's and I think it's a lot of fun. I I, I had a good time doing it, and um, hope that I uh, hope that I made sense of things, and and yeah. so they can find that kind of material on online. I, I 
I have never written the popular book that I ought to be writing. But the other thing I would recommend is if people are interested in Poverty Point, that they um, uh, go to the Louisiana um, Division of Archaeology website, um, which, again, they can just Google and, and find that because they have some publications. Um, and the other thing is they, they can look up uh, John, J-O-N, Gibson, who is the, the preeminent scholar, really, you know, my uh, sort of uh, person I look up to and, and someone I learned a great deal from about Poverty Point. And he's written some more popular kinds of books, um, particularly a book called Poverty Point, Place of the Rings. And that's a, that's a, a good layperson's overview of Poverty Point. Okay, great. And, and, and what's your website? Uh, I can't give you. I'm sorry, I don't know the URL. But if they oh, Google Tristram okay. Kidder at the, at Washington University in St. Louis. Okay. All right. So, and it, Tr, uh, th- thank you. Th- th- this was uh, really terrific. I know you're. Uh, Staying up past your bedtime, so you know we'll we'll let you go. And you know, Barbara, do you want to step in and wrap up the show? I, thank you so much. This was a, a very informative uh, di- discussion tonight. We really enjoyed it. So, cool. okay, Mark, um, happy to do that for you. I want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. We know how precious your time is, and we have tried to honor it as best we can. Uh, the information has certainly been um, educational, enlightening, and, and entertaining. And um, we are so very grateful that uh, T.R. Kidder has stayed up past his bedline to share bedtime to share his wisdom with us. Um, tune in tomorrow night. We have Mary Joyce with us, and then again next Monday for another fun show. Um, Thanks again, everybody, and good night.